12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly, the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing Good. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help this day. We ask now that by your Spirit you awaken us to this your word. We can be dull, we can prefer to hide in our sinfulness. Save us from that. I pray if someone here doesn't know Christ that this is the beginning of their knowledge of Him as Lord and Savior. Grant, Father, what we so desperately need in the work of Your Spirit. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In our lifetimes, many of us have profited from Johnny Erickson Tada and her perspective on suffering as a quadriplegic. Back in 2011, she was being interviewed. And this is what she told the interviewer. For more than 10 years, so now this is 20 years after the fact, I have dealt with chronic pain. Very unusual for a quadriplegic like me. Piled on top of my quadriplegia, at times it seemed too much to bear. So I went back and examined my original views on divine healing to see what I could learn. What I discovered was that God still reserves the right to heal or not to heal as He sees fit. And rather than try to frantically escape the pain, I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary where otherwise I would not naturally be inclined to go. I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to drive me snapping at my heels down the road 
to Calvary. We do not by nature look at suffering the way we should. When we are suffering, we prefer any way out. Our first prayer, and I'm not picking on this, brethren, I think it is a natural instinct. Our first prayer when faced with suffering is, Lord, make it stop. Lord, get me out. Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God over all things will still struggle with suffering. If it were easy for us to deal with suffering, we wouldn't see as much in the Bible about it as we do. Yeah, I've learned something over the years reading the Bible. If it shows up and it shows up multiple times, it's probably telling us something about us. Peter is again calling us to faithful living in fearful times. And that includes suffering as Christians. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a wonderful little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I highly recommend that little book. It's one of those little Banner of Truth pilgrim paperbacks. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Hear what he said. To be well skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. To be well schooled in Christian contentment is the glory and duty and excellence of every Christian. Now, a moment of stark frankness. We would much prefer to be skilled at anything else. I have rarely heard of Christians. I say, what's the Lord teaching you lately? Oh, He's helping me grow in the glory and duty and excellence of suffering. It's more like, my life's a train wreck. I'm in pain. I've got grief. My marriage seems in trouble. My kids are a problem. My job is a nightmare, and I'm a mess. Of course, I'm sitting here thinking, well, that all sounds about normal. We regularly misunderstand suffering as Christians. Suffering should lead us to think of our glorious future. Now, Peter, I think, does two things here. He talks about suffering and glory, and then he talks about suffering and judgment. You notice the one thing that shows up both places, right? The suffering aspect. So consider in verses 12 to 16, suffering and glory. And it begins with this very peculiar way of speaking. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And is that not our opening response? Surprise, and this is weird. Surprise, and why is this happening to me? 
But I look at this, and the first thing that shouts at me is there's something strangely paradoxical in these verses. Look how many times the word suffer or suffering shows up. Verse 13, sufferings. Verse 14, he speaks again of suffering or being insulted. Uh, verse 15, suffer. Verse 15, uh, excuse me, 16, suffers. Verse 19, suffers. Hmm. And just before that, in the 12th verse, not just trials, fiery trials. Had to include the adjective, right? But along with that, these words, rejoice, verse 13, and glory, or the word glorify, verses 13, 14, 16. These are not words we naturally put together. We don't do fire trials, suffering, five or six different times, and put with that glory, glorify, and joy. Because in our thinking, suffering can only mean sorrow. And suffering surely can't have anything to do with glory. One brother put it this way, so unwilling are the children of the Lord to forecast trials and make themselves familiar before they come. So subject to security, even when the trials are near, so ready to dream of much worldly ease that they get but a little breathing time from trouble to promise themselves perpetual exemption from it, that they are in great hazard to be surprised and perplexed at the sight of approaching trials. My friends, we are being commanded here not to be surprised, nor to be thinking it's strange that we suffer. And this is the lie of every version of prosperity gospel you hear today. The lie that God always wants you to be happy and healthy and everything just to be wonderful in your life. Now, they say it with big smiles, and they say it with bright lights, and they say it with all sorts of special effects, and they even say it musically. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, they're all lying! They are wolves! Let's quit pretending they're anything else. I think they mean well. No, they mean your damnation. You think they know that? I don't know that they know it, my friends, but whether they know it or not, the outcome of that understanding of the Christian life is not Christianity. It's destruction. 
Peter's saying the same thing Jesus said. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you. Blessed are you. In other words, happy, delighted, this is good for you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for they so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. And if that isn't enough, he's saying what James also said. James 1, 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There was a fellow named George Matheson. Born in Glasgow, Scotland, March 1842, and he was born with congenitally poor eyesight. By the time he was 18, he had nearly lost it completely. Robbed of his physical eyesight, he still grew as a believer and had some extraordinary spiritual insight. I'd have you hear what he said, and I'm going to come back to this a little later, but hear these words. There is a time coming in which your glory shall consist in the very thing which now constitutes your pain. Did you hear that? Nothing could be more sad to Jacob than the ground on which he was lying, a stone for his pillow. It was the hour of his poverty. It was the, reason, the season of his night. It was the seeming absence of God. The Lord was in the place and he knew it not. Awakened from sleep, he found the day of his trial was the dawn of his triumph. Ask the great ones of the past what has been the spot of their prosperity, and they'll say it was the cold ground on which I was lying. Ask Abraham, he'll point to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Ask Joseph, he'll direct you to his dungeon. Ask Moses, he'll date his fortune from his danger in the Nile. Ask Ruth, she'll bid you to build her a monument in the field of her toil. Ask David, he'll tell you that his songs came in the night. Ask Job, he'll remind you God answered him out of the whirlwind. Ask Peter, he'll extol his submission in the sea. Ask John, he'll give you the path to Patmos. Ask Paul, he will attribute his inspiration to the light which struck him blind. Ask one more, the Son of God. Ask him whence has come his rule over the world, he'll answer. From the cold ground on which I was lying, the Gethsemane ground, I received my scepter there. You too, my soul, shall be garlanded by Gethsemane. The cup you'd fain pass from you now will be your crown in the world by and by. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that shall be revealed to us. You see, there's nothing quite so confirming as something pleasant that you've not had for a long time. Right? We look forward to things. Um, if you've ever had to fast for a medical procedure, didn't that first meal taste good, assuming you had enough wits about you to remember it? My wife can tell stories. I hope she doesn't, but she can. When, you're, when you've not seen a friend or a family member in a long time, isn't that first meeting a grand one? 
when, when you've been on the road for a long time to visit a place you've always wanted to go, isn't the first sight of the place something special? Burrows, again, the rare jewel. When the heart is taken up with the weighty things of eternal life, the things here below that disquieted it before are things now of no consequence to him in comparison with the others. Our sight is short. We have a hard time lifting our eyes above the immediacy of the moment and the immediacy of this horizon. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Insults for Christ are glorious. Don't be surprised. Don't think this strange. Now, folks, I've not specified the suffering. I mean, Peter will say, better that you suffer as a Christian than these other things. But understand, suffering can show up in all sorts of ways. Some by direct persecution, some simply by the nature of living in this world. Helen Rosevere was a Christian British medical doctor who served more than 20 years in Zaire, Africa. In 1964, there was a revolution that overwhelmed the country. She and her co-workers were thrown into five and a half months of unbelievable brutality and torture. And for a moment, she thought God had forsaken her. But then she was overwhelmed with a sense of His presence, and she records that it was as if God was saying to her, 20 years ago, you asked me for the privilege of being a missionary, the privilege of being identified with me. This is it. Don't you want it? This is what it means. These are not your sufferings, they are mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Oh, brothers and sisters, we don't think like that. We're not even sure how to think like that. And I'm thankful Peter knows that, so he's telling us how to think like that. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. And don't be ashamed. Look at verse 15 and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now we stop there and say, that is one strange conglomeration, Peter. Murderer? Yeah. You ought to suffer for that. Thief? You bet. Evildoer? All other crimes? You bet. Criminals ought to suffer. Meddlers? No, 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 Simon Peter. I'm not being meddlesome. I'm being helpful. Meddlers probably ought to suffer too. Suffering should never cause us shame, but should lead us to praise. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name. See, the name Christian only shows up a handful of times in the text. Acts chapter 11, verse 26 when they had found him, they brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and uh, taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Little Christs, that's the name that was assigned to them. Acts 26, Agrippa says to Paul, 
In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And here is Simon Peter taking up that name. Now notice how he does that. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If you're going to cause me to suffer for claiming Christ, I'll own that. Yes, I will not be ashamed for that cause for suffering. And my friends, is this not our natural reaction? Surprise? This is strange. Why is this happening to me? And shame. Because there's other people out there, they're not suffering. Why me? My friends, suffering is connected to glory. And you cannot dismiss that for our Lord and Savior, the path to glory is through Gethsemane, through a cross, through death. Why do we think that we should be spared when he was not? That's suffering and judgment. At the 17th verse, he shifts the focus. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. First, this judgment has to be seen this way. Even in suffering, God is purging His people. Now, it's Interesting, it appears that Simon Peter is actually thinking about the prophecy of Malachi when he writes these words. Malachi seems to be in mind, because Malachi in the third chapter will speak of the coming of the Lord in judgment. Now listen to his words, and you can turn there if you'd like, Malachi the third chapter, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. Now that sounds vaguely familiar, does it not? Prophecy of John the Baptist, right? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Peter says, Christians, your suffering is part of God purifying you and purging you. This is exactly what James will say in James the first chapter that the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perishes. Excuse me, that's 1 Peter 1. James says it in another way, the whole point being that faith is tried, and as that faith is tried in the fire, as you are put in affliction, desired character is coming out of you. Here's the reality, folks. Most of us have a hard time learning when everything's going well. We get lazy. We become thoughtless. 
I dare say that for most of you, your prayer life improved remarkably when things got bad. And then when things improved, well, Lord, it's all going well. Amen. I ought to read my Bible today, but, you know, other things to do. Our devotional life suffers. Our holiness suffers. Judgment from the Lord. Now understand, this is not judgment in the sense of condemnation and destruction. This is judgment in the sense of purging His people. God uses the trials in your life not to make you wonder whether or not you're a Christian, but for you to grow as a Christian. Spurgeon said it this way, Do not, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, do you not sometimes feel how hard it is for you to be saved? When you put your soul before the tribunal of your own enlightened conscience, or our own conscience at the best is a poor partial judge compared to the impartial and infallible judge who will by and by sit upon that great white throne. Our suffering reminds us that we are still frail, fallible creatures. We don't do this very well. There's no great triumphant Christians. Every time I hear, I'm living the victorious Christian life, I want to get as far away from those again. Because there's bad stuff coming. If they're actually the Lord's duck and cover. You and I live this life under a kind of judgment, not judgment of destruction, judgment of purging. But you see, God also punishes His enemies. If God allows His children, whom He loves, to be chastened to suffer, what will He do to those who hate Him? Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Calvin put it this way, God, is, God so regulates His judgments in this world that He fattens the wicked for the day of slaughter and therefore passes by their many sins as though He connived with them, conspired with them. In the meantime, He recalls by corrections His own children for whom he has a care to the right way whenever they depart from him. You see, my, my dear brother and sister, the Lord, when you start deviating, he's going to start bringing you back. Right? He, he, he does it. Now, sometimes it feels like severe mercy. Still quote the old evangelist Manly Beasley, if you're the Lord's sheep, you may go out and buy a goat coat, but he's going to strip you of it. He will not let you live this way. And so what's the outcome? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, oh, 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 mark that, suffer according to God's will. Whose will? God's will. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Suffering should lead us to deeper, greater 
commitment. George Matheson that I mentioned earlier, I didn't know this till this week, George Matheson was a hymn writer. He wrote the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Now, some of you have no idea what that hymn is, and that's all right. I'm going to give you one line of it here in a little bit, one stanza. We've sung it here. Here's what he says about that hymn. Now, this remember, this is the fellow who has lost his eyesight by age 18. He is at the wedding of his sister, and we're never, he never tells what exactly happened. But listen to his words. My hymn was composed in the manse, that's what we'd call a parsonage, of Inellen on the evening of the 6th of June, 1882. Something happened to me which was known only to myself and which caused me the most severe mental suffering. The hymn was the fruit of that suffering. It was the quickest bit of work I ever did in my life. I had the impression rather of having it dictated to me by some inward voice than of working it out myself. I'm quite sure the whole work was completed in five minutes. And equally sure, it never received at my hands any retouching or correction. I I have no natural gift of rhythm. All the other verses I've ever written are manufactured articles. This came like a day spring from on high, and I've never been able to gain once more the same fervor in verse. Listen to this stanza from this hymn. O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain that morn shall tearless be. Christian, there is glorious purpose in your suffering. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. Don't be ashamed. Entrust your soul to His care. He said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And the first thought for most of us when suffering comes is, where's God? He's exactly where He's always been. Well, I don't like this. He didn't ask. I don't want to. He doesn't care. Now, let me rephrase that. He doesn't care about your sinful longing for deliverance. What He cares is what He's doing in you for His glory and your good. Don't think for a moment there is some formula you can use to escape. Don't buy for a moment the lie that if you say the right words in the right way, everything changes. Don't buy the lie of the enemy that this is evidence he doesn't love you. You remember how the Apostle Paul ends the 8th chapter of Romans? When he opens with the question, what shall separate us from the love of God? 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he goes down this list of all these things. You remember what he says at each end of that as he's doing it? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So it doesn't matter if angels or demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is against us. The love of God never changes. Hmm. It hurts. Yes, it does. But oh, my friend, the day comes. The day comes when all the sorrow shall be undone. All the hurts and pain shall be mended. All the failure, all the stumbling, all of our foolishness shall be undone. And as horrid as suffering can be in this life, the day shall come when you will look at that with a smile on your face and joyfully say, that's nothing. Look where we are. Look who we are. Look at the Lamb of God who has taken away our sin. Our Father, 